We are Encountering Silence. Encountering Silence is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. Please visit patreon.com slash encountering silence to learn more about how you can be part of the circle and share in our efforts to bring silence into our all too noisy world. Sophronia Scott grew up in Lorraine, Ohio, a hometown she shares with the author Toni Morrison. She holds a Bachelor of Arts degree in English from Harvard and an MFA in writing from Vermont College of Fine Arts. She began her career as an award-winning magazine journalist for Time and People. When her first novel, All I Need to Get By, was published in 2004, Sophronia was nominated for Best New Author at the African American Literary Awards. Her other books include the novel Unforgivable Love, an essay collection titled Love's Long Line, and a memoir she co-authored with her son titled This Child of Faith, Raising a Spiritual Child in a Secular World. Her most recent book, The Seeker and the Monk, Everyday Conversations with Thomas Merton, was published in March of 2021. And upon a visit to Merton's monastery, the Abbey of Gethsemane, Sophronia writes in her book, This thing had a hold of me. It was silence. I have no doubt it was the same silence that Merton, enthralled with what he'd heard on his first walk, had called the marvelous quiet. Sophronia Scott, welcome to Encountering Silence. Thank you, Cassidy. I'm very happy to be here. So we love beginning by asking our guests about your relationship with silence. Has there been maybe a special or particular time in your life where you had a meaningful encounter with silence? And would you mind sharing that story? I think it goes back to, to childhood. And maybe it's because, you know, there are seven kids in our family and we lived in a house that was less than a thousand square feet. So I, I think that, that being in a moment of silence somehow was so different from my usual experience that, that, I, that I, I sort of latched onto it. I recognized it that there was something different going on there. And, uh, and I still kind of remember it because it was summer and I just remember, I think I was outside, uh, but, but just that, that feeling of absolute nothing. And it's, it just felt different, that I felt comforted somehow. I, it felt like a very specific thing. So, in the same way that people, I guess, listen for, for tunes or, oh, that's a bird. I think something in me is, is constantly attuned to silence. So I'm, I'm constantly listening for it. When I hear it, it, it just shows up, right? I hear it and I'm like, oh, here it is, <laughs> right? So I don't know, something in me, I think is attuned to it. I love the way you describe it with such texture and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it kind of like, it, it makes me think of the phrasing, a palpable silence. Like it, it's there, you know, the, the nothingness is present. Yes. Oh, it's, I feel like I can feel it, that, that it isn't mm. something that I'm hearing. Uh, I, I think I've even used the phrase um, that, that it's something I can step in or put on like, like a blanket around me. And it's, it's that real, like it's, it has a softness. And, and yet uh, a kind of weight, like a good blanket, right? 
that, that I think that's the best way I can describe it. It's something I, I definitely feel and it's warm. I, it's, it's comforting. And is silence a part of your daily irregular practice or a part of your practice as a writer or spiritually, formally or informally? I, I relish the, the silence of the morning, right? That first early morning silence. And even before I get out of bed, I like to sit with it for a bit. My meditation and prayer always starts with silence. But you, you asked about my writing practice. And the funny thing is, is that oftentimes I write in silence, but there comes a point where my ears are almost exhausted with it. And I realize, you know, this is my office that I'm in right now, that there's something where I feel that I have been in the quiet too long and I have to turn on some music. Um, in the other part of my office, I have a TV over there. Sometimes I will have the TV on uh, running something that I love, but don't have to pay attention to like Harry Potter film or something. Um, music that um, like jazz or something without words. Again, something that I can listen to, but, but it won't take up my, my, my brain too much. So I have to be very specific uh, what I fill the silence with. I would argue, especially jazz, that there's lots of silence in jazz, just like there's lots of silence in poetry. My wife and I love the Italian composer uh, Ludovico Ainaudi, and we, in fact, she's playing him right now in the, in the next room. And, and again, because it's, he's not jazz, he's classical, but it's this similar kind of, you know, a lot of solo piano and a lot of silence. So, um, but I really want to circle back to your, um, to the, the kind of almost being full of silence. Could you, could you maybe open that up a little for us? That, that, that's a beautiful image. I'd, I'd just like to know more about that. What is that like for you? Oh, goodness. How can I put words to that? You know, but then isn't, you know, I write about faith and that's what the constant thing is, is me sitting here trying to put words to, to, to the abstract, right? How do I explain this to you? That it is something that, that is, is familiar. And, and yet I can tell when I've had too, too much of it. It's almost like an exhaustion <laughs> on my ears, right? That, that, um, and, and somehow it feels like it's not right, that, that somehow it's, it's almost like um, something has gone dead. Like, have you put in like noise canceling earbuds? Like I've had those for the first time. I only just got these for Christmas and I will put them in and, and we have, a, um, we have a, a wood pellet stove insert in our fireplace. And it's, it's constantly like a humming sound. And when I put those earphones in, it goes Vroom, and that sound is suddenly gone. And it's, it's, it's disconcerting and it's shocking. So I can only describe like when I've had too much silence, it, it almost goes dead in that same way. It's like, and, and the silence is no longer uh, fruitful somehow, <laughs> that it's become empty. And I was like, okay, I gotta get out of this. The word that comes to mind for me is, is being satiated. It's almost like having too much food. Is that, is that a fair comparison? Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, I guess that's what it must be. Because you don't feel right when you've had too much food. And it's the same, even though it's a good thing. Oh, gosh, a woman I knew used to say, um, too much of a good thing is too bad. <laughs> so it's just like that. 
Yeah, I I completely appreciate the comment too about like all of a sudden there's the moment of just too much. And I I know that because you're a writer and as you just said, struggling to find the words to say something that doesn't seem that you can put it into words. I just wonder if also like say like uh satisfied or full. I wonder if it's also tired. You know, because the silence is just so, has so much to offer. At some point you say enough. I, I just stop trying to feed me enough. I can't. Yeah, that's exactly it. That's why I have to turn something on. <laughs> you know, I can't process this anymore. Then I'm done. Yeah, because it sounds to me like like you're the translator of silence, and you're offering us your insights. And then you just say, "I'm tired. I can't." I, I don't speak multiple languages. I really wish. Uh, maybe I should ask somebody about this. But I, I have to wonder if you're a translator all day and you're speaking three, four languages and trying to talk to people, if at some point you just say, listen, I can't translate anymore today. My mind is hurting. I'm doing three languages, you know. <laughs> I, yeah, you know, that that must be, there must be something to that because, you know, it's sort of like, and, and I hope my, my husband and son won't get upset about this, but but yeah, like sometimes I am kind of translating between the two of them constantly because they you know my son's a teenager now so so these guys and their testosterone right and and but there are times when I'm like you guys solve it yourselves I'm done <laughs> can't do this anymore um actually and this is going to sound strange I'm actually getting a they we have like a Nintendo Switch and and they're they're now you know they don't play together they play their own separate things and now we were having to get, I'm going to try to get a used switch because I'm tired of, of trying to mediate between the two of them who was using the switch. Like, no, can't do it. It's easier to buy the other thing than to deal with this. <laughs> mm. Sophronia, part of what I'm also hearing is your work and your last book in particular is kind of this translating of the silence that you're sitting in. And your most recent book, The Seeker and the Monk, Everyday Conversations with Thomas Merton, it's almost a mystical encounter in and of itself, having a conversation with a, a dead monk. And you engage in very lively dialogue with Merton. And I wonder if you could share with us the origin of how that dialogue began and how you began really translating those mystical encounters into, into this book. Well, it began... In, in, gosh, I think it was, it was late December uh, 2011, when I started the um, MFA program, I was earning, going to earn my MFA. And one of the first lectures I heard was a lecture uh, by the writer, uh, Robert Vivian. And he, in just in the course of that lecture, read an excerpt from Conjectures of a Guilty Bystander. And I had no idea who Merton was or who this guy was. And I'm going, I'm going to read you part of it because it, it actually does mention silence. And this is the part from his section called uh, The Night Spirit and the Dawn Air. And it begins with how the valley awakes, right? So already this is about morning and, and it starts in silence. But he says, the first chirps of the waking birds mark the point vierge of the dawn under a sky as yet without real light, a moment of awe an inexpressible innocence when the father in perfect silence opens their eyes. 
They begin to speak to him, not with fluent song, but with an awakening question that is their dawn state, their state at the point Vierge. Their condition asks if it is time for them to be. He answers, yes. Then they one by one wake up and become birds. They manifest themselves as birds beginning to sing. Presently, they will be themselves and will even fly. Meanwhile, the most wonderful moment of the day is that when creation in its innocence asks permission to be once again, as it did on the first morning that ever was. So I was, you know, I, and I think I probably like something in me recognized what he was talking about, that silence, that morning silence. And I want it to be outside in the morning. Yes, I want that message too. I want to hear that silence and get that, that moment of saying, yes, Sophronia, it's time for you to be. Right. And that was exciting to me and that was thrilling. And, and I had to find out who this person was. And I, I, I went in search of Thomas Merton. What did you read first? Did you get Conjectures or, or one of his other books? Well, actually I tried to get, con I got Conjectures from a library. I had to get it via interlibrary loan. Actually the part that I just read you, those pages were, had been torn out of the book, right? So I was yeah. like, okay. <laughs> So I had to, you know, I had to send that book back. And while I was waiting for that book, the next book, I, um, I, I read The Seven Story Mountain. And I, you know, I, I loved it. I, I felt like I was starting to get to know him. But there was something about the book that felt like there was something missing. Uh -huh. And I'm, I'm a writer and I'm also a creative writing teacher. And I know when my students are holding something back. And so I just felt like there's something missing in this book. I don't know, like he's holding things back. And it, it wasn't until later that I learned that his work uh, at, and the work of, of you know, so many Catholic writers had to go through a censorship process. And that there were things that he hadn't been allowed to elaborate on or even talk about. Uh, things like um, his... Um, being kicked out of Cambridge and, and fathering a, a child out of wedlock when he was a very young man. So I, I just saw that these were missing pieces and I learned that he had written extensive journals, journals that he'd written from, from the time he was a very young man and that these journals had been published with the stipulation that they not be published until 25 years after his death. And I realized, okay, this is where I'm going to find the unvarnished Merton. And there was something in me that I cared enough that I wanted to know who he was in that way. And I started reading those journals. Sophronia, I have to tell you this story. I'm the lay associate of a Trappist monastery in Georgia, Monastery of the Holy Spirit. And I did not meet this monk because he died before I started hanging out there. But another monk told me that one of Merton's censors was at this particular monastery. I think there were several monks who worked with Merton because he wrote so much. This particular monk, the story I heard was that Merton would get on the phone with him and beg to allow certain things to be put back into the book. And that at the end of this monk's life, he was actually deeply penitent. He felt he had been too hard on Merton. Mm. So it's a fascinating little glimpse into that internal process that normally lay people or people outside the cloister just wouldn't, you know, there's no transparency there. So yeah, it, it's, it's a fascinating story. And it's, it's so wonderful to be at this point of time when we have access to the Cold War letters or to the journals, 
or other writings of his that really were not okay in the eyes of the censors, unfortunately. Yeah. And censoring can be a kind of, you know, silencing. What we kind of talk about is toxic silencing on this podcast. And, you know, I'm struck that there's a failure to distinguish our lack of words for silence create this issue where we have to add another word to describe what kind of silence it is from time to time, right? Like, is it oppressive silence? Is it a toxic silence? Is it a loving silence? Is it a present silence? And I really appreciate that in your book that you, you talk to Merton about all kinds of things and your chapter on race was particularly striking to me. And yeah, your, your willingness to engage with Merton both on his failures to engage that topic and also some uncover some of the ways in which he did engage that. And I wonder if you might be willing to speak a little bit to, yeah, to that chapter and, and how you felt in the writing process, if there was a freedom for you to critique Merton, were you writing from that place of loving silence where you felt free to, you know, critique Merton and push back and ask questions and engage in that kind of a way? It wasn't that kind of chapter and, and it wasn't about really seeking to critique him. And, and a lot of the book is, you know, even though I push back with Merton on a lot of things, it's really not about critiquing, it's about a conversation. And that chapter was, was probably the hardest to write in the book because it's not just me talking about Merton's thoughts. It's, I am also trying to work through my issues with race and how to, how to not step back and silence myself when I feel like there's nothing more to say, that this is absolutely ridiculous and untenable and nothing is changing. So why should I even bother? And, and where do I have anything to say anyway? So I'm stepping into a room with Merton where I'm looking at how he did engage. And when he has given advice, he gave advice to a, a black Catholic priest about issues with the Catholic church concerning racism and, and this guy's own bishop, right? So I'm, I'm looking at how to, how to authentically address race and not hurt my own heart, my own compassionate heart that wants to, to, you know, how do I not be in a constant state of anger over what's going on in the world, right? So that was what I was coming to the table with concerning that conversation with Merton. And what I found were his writings, not just in, in mentoring that young man, but his own writings about looking at it from the white experience right, and being very articulate about how so much of what we're talking about is not an issue with black people, it's an issue with white people. And he said this, you know, over 50 years ago, he said that this issue will not be solved until even white liberals understand that they will be made very uncomfortable by what needs to happen, by the change that needs to happen in order for us to truly understand and accept the unity of us all. So I found his thoughts about nonviolence, faith, 
compassion uh, really spoke to me because I, I come from a place of being a compassionate person anyway, but helping me understand how to put, put that in motion in a way that's going to, I hope, move the conversation in race, on race forward. We'll see. I really appreciate the way you describe this too. And so it makes me want to scratch a little bit at this because I love books where there's a dialogue going on with somebody who's not in the room uh, because it really seems like there's something creative there and yet they're in the room. And that's why, again, I don't like, I don't know how to say this because it's something I don't want this beyond words. Could you unpack for us a little bit how this happens so do you go to a space, like, so for instance, do you go to a space and imagine that Merton's standing there with you? Do you hear a voice that you want to respond to? Do you read some, one of his texts and then like engage the text? How does the quote dialogue happen for you? Is, is there a voice? Is it a dialogue? Is it a reading the text? Like, I'm just trying to unpack that because it's so fascinating. Well, it didn't occur to me that this was something unusual until I was talking about it, but I just assume that everybody reads with a voice in mind and that you are at times arguing with whatever it is that you're reading. And, and I remember one time when I tried to read, we were talking about jazz earlier, Toni Mor Morrison has a, a novel called Jazz. And I remember when that book first came out, I tried to read it and there's a point where she goes, she, she like does an anecdote within an anecdote within a flashback, something weird. And I practically threw that book up. I was like, you're asking too much of me. I was like, I'm not gonna do it. I can't, I, I couldn't finish that book at the time. Uh, and I've read it since and, and totally loved it. But, but you know, that's an engagement, right? With the work. And, and maybe I'm more ebullient about it than others. I don't know. But it's just, I found myself in reading through the journals thinking about the things that I'm dealing with in my own personal life, right? And, and because he is such a strong first person voice in those journals, it kind of feels like, you know, when I'm walking around dealing with stuff in my life, I kind of hear, think about what he said as I'm facing something, right? So that's why I describe it in the book. And, and I said this um, at the Festival of Faith and Writing, which is how the idea for this book came about. I sat there on a stage feeling a little bit like a fraud that I'd been asked to be on this panel about Thomas Merton but I'm not a, a, like I'm not an academic. I'm not a student. A, I have not studied right Pat, um, Thomas Merton in the way that it seemed the other people on stage had, and I, I confess that right away to the audience. Look, I'm not a, a student. I'm. I just have this monk who follows me around and gives me advice, right? And so I'm going to talk to you from that stance, and surprisingly, a lot of people came up to me afterwards that, that they, I guess they wanted to have that same sort of engagement. They talked about how helpful what I said, you know, was to them. And, and finally, someone said to me, you're writing your Merton book, aren't you? And I was like, oh, I guess I am writing my Merton book. But, but I realized what it would be because I model things. You know, I'm not someone who's going to come out and say, you should do this. And here's my prescription for that. I, I find, and maybe this is because I'm, I'm an older sister, that, that I can just do it and, and, and learn from what I'm doing. So I figured, okay, I'm just going to try to take you through my thought process. This is how I do it. This is what it's like for me. And, and to show you the things in his journals that, that inspired me or the things that I'm pushed back against. So 
So that's all I can do is just, you know, and I do that, I think in a lot of my writing, I'm basically talking people through my, my um, thought process because it seems like a lot of people don't know how to think and, or they're not aware of their thoughts in, in a way that's helpful to them. So, so all I can say is, okay, here's how I do it. And hopefully this will help you figure out your own process and even develop your own sense of Merton. Here's your way into his work. I really appreciate that. And I love what you just said, because what it's uncovering for me is how I don't do that. (laughs) (laughs) And, and so, you know, I mean, I know this isn't about me, but just to give you a glimpse is when I read my attitude of reading is open receptivity. I never question a first read through ever, even if it's a person I hate, I'm reading through with like this, like hermeneutic of generosity of like, there has to be something good here or it wouldn't be a book. And I know that might be naive. I know that's real, but that's my approach. It's like, this wouldn't show up in my life unless it was worthy. And I'll go through the book and I'll read it. And then afterwards, then my mind starts to go, no, that was garbage. Or, you know, and then I start doing the critique or, you know, but like it's after the fact. So if I had to write this book, I would have to read it and like be in love with the author and then sit down and then have the argument in front of myself. Like, that's why I was asking, because I was trying to picture how I would write this book and it wouldn't happen with the text. It would happen in another place. Maybe Merton follows me around later, like you're saying. <laughs> so is, is that what you do when you're in live conversation with people? Yes. Like, like you're like not thinking about, well, wow, where is that coming from? Or Yeah, never. Interesting. I never, like uh, when I'm with people, I'm just listening to people. And this is what's weird. I had to discover over the years that I'm the type of person that could, I have to catch myself I can get caught up in, if you telling me something, I can go along with your story and totally believe you. And you can kind of sway me to be, and I'll be like, oh yeah, you're right. And then I'm like, wait a minute, what? No. (laughs) So so you could kind of walk me down the path of like, let's charge and attack the next door neighbor's house. And I'm like, yes, wait, why? What? What So I have to do the thinking, you know, the moment afterwards, but I'm just totally present in conversation, like listening. Um, but there's another type of, of being present where you are listening and because sometimes a person doesn't necessarily realize or understand what it is they're saying. Right. So, so you have to be able to ask questions, you know, so, so like that, that sort of feedback. So you're telling me, so you're telling me that you listen in this way and, and, and are even susceptible to what, you know, so this is just an example. So, um, so to me, my, my form of presence, and it's not about judging or anything, but it is about being aware in the moment of, of, of what is happening. And, and also this is my way, this is how I hear if something is missing. Yeah. Right. It's amazing. Just the way I listen. Um, and I don't know, you know, some of that, I think I grew up with, but some of it, you know, I was a journalist for 15 years. So I spent a lot of time asking questions and, and listening to people. So no, I appreciate yeah. it. I think it's great because I, I actually feel like I have an extra step. Like I have to be aware of myself and the questions I'm asking. You seem to be integrating and doing it immediately, which is probably something I should practice a little more for myself. <laughs> but don't you think that is the mark of a good journalist? Yeah is that ability to be, to bring, and I'm, I'm using critical in the best sense of the word, but bringing that critical mind to the moment. 
you're you're listening on your feet. Right. Yes. Right. Yeah. Now there's something, and and maybe and this is probably kind of why I'm I'm not a journalist anymore because because I understand what it takes for someone to be able to to speak and to to want to share a story, and people used to say to me after an interview that they felt really good. And they said, you know, I, I felt like I should even pay you for this. So it seemed like we had an exchange that to me, I, I wouldn't, I didn't want to commercialize that, that there was something meaningful there and we had a conversation and now I'm supposed to go back and write a story about it. That's tough. Hmm. That is a tough thing to do. And um, it's almost like you're running therapy for people. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I it's, mean it's beautiful. It's gorgeous. I mean, that's that's a real gift for people that you offer that. Sophronia, um, are you familiar with Ignatian spirituality or the Ignatian method of prayer? I only just discovered it about two years ago when I was um, teaching a summer class at Drew uh, Theological, and uh, we went on a, a day-long retreat at an Ignatian uh Mm-hmm. As as I was the the seeker and the monk, that's what came to mind for me was that you seem to be almost engaging in this kind of Ignatian process with Merton. I mean, as we all know, you know, Merton passed away what over fifty years ago now, so clearly it was an imaginal encounter, and yet in this imaginal space, there was obviously a meaningful encounter that gave birth to this beautiful book in addition to whatever blessings you yourself received from it. Yeah. I didn't realize how real it was until I went to the Abbey and, and felt his presence there and felt myself mourning him felt, felt, you know, in, in just, you know, in tears because I wished he was there that I, that I, you know, to be in a place that that he that I'd seen in my head so many times because he described it so well, and and to realize that um, that this this was a fully embodied presence for me, and I because I really felt like I was missing a friend, really did. Sophronia, you write in your book about a really powerful encounter with silence while you were at the Abbey of Gethsemane. Could you share that with us? Yes, you know, I went out for a walk. And I thought it was going to be a short walk. It turned out to be a, a really difficult hike. <laughs> I didn't expect it to be, but but I I kept going because I heard this silence. I was absent, and, and you know, I already told you that when I hear silence, it, it kind of wakes me up. I, I recognize it. I hear it. But but that even this silence felt different. And maybe I was just fascinated because I was in a wide open space. I was standing on the edge of a lake this wide open space, fields and trees and water, and yet it was silent. And it was, it was mesmerizing to me. And, and, and I think I sent you a video. I, I, it's, it was even silly of me to try to record it, but I was like, I wanted, I wanted people to hear it. Can you hear this? Isn't this amazing? Listen, it's nothing, it's silence. But it, it just totally endeared me. And I was like, I have to keep going. I want to keep going. This must be what he heard when when he was out here. And it just, oh, it, it just, I was so enamored of it that I just kept walking. 
It was wonderful. This conversation on encountering silence will continue after a 30-second break of silence. Take a moment and breathe with us. So you mentioned the hardest chapter to write. What was the easiest part to write? What unfolded the most simply, the most clearly, the most easily for you? Probably the uh, the chapter about love, because because you know I I already have certain feelings about how uh, I mean as a writer I'm always writing about love in one way or another in my fiction in my nonfiction I'm fascinated by love and fascinated by how we fear it, how we say we want it, and yet we run from it, how we're shamed by it, like many aspects of love. And I came into wanting to write about love, knowing that I was going to write about his relationship with the nurse he fell in love with in 1966, and how that love changed him. And I know that there are all sorts of, you know, people treat that as a, sometimes think about it as, as a story of scandal. But to me, if you read his journals before, just in the, the months before he had that back surgery, everything that he was writing about was so dark. He was, he was thinking about death a lot. He was in pain, right, from, the, from his back. And all of, it, it just was not, hopeful in terms of what he was writing. Then he has the surgery, he goes to the hospital, he meets this nurse, he falls in love. And after that, there is no talk about pain, even though he's probably still recovering from that back surgery. It is all, he's giddy. He's like a boy. It's like he's alive again. And I was fascinated by that. It's like, you cannot deny the fact that, that this love changed him. And so I was, I was just, you know, I jumped into that like a pool. <laughs> it was like, I, I wanted to, people to see that. Look at this. This is the power of love. Look at the things that he wrote about this. Um, even after um, articles he wrote about love and, and how we turned it into a marketplace, right? And, and I, was like, I was like, oh my gosh, what would he think of like eHarmony <laughs> these days and our swiping left and swiping right? But, um, but it even made him rethink the way he was as a young man thinking about what he'd given up when he became a priest, right? That was, that's fascinating to me. So it's like, you know, let's put this on the page and talk about it. You know, this is in my wheelhouse. Love is in my wheelhouse. So I'm going to talk about this. So, so, uh, so yeah, that was, that was, I don't want to say fun, but, but that was meaningful to me to really get into that. And I love the way that you in the book really explore the layers and the complexities of Merton. And obviously, right, even in that situation, he brought a lot of complexities along with him, being being a boy who lost his parents and then his brother and 
um, all kinds of histories, just like we all bring to situations. And you also speak to the notion of Merton's ambition. And you write that the heart of Merton's issues were amb- with ambition, I believe, goes back to his notion of there being two versions of himself, yes. the monk, Brother Lewis, and Thomas Merton, who sneaked into the monastery with him. Yes. Whenever we split ourselves, there will be problems, you write. And in this section, you also discuss allowing versus limiting and the ways we can integrate the fullness of ourselves into something. So I wonder how has contemplative life or silence been a part of the fullness of your own integration? Uh, well, it's interesting. You know, you mentioned the two Thomas Mertons and that, that Thomas Merton, the writer, often interfered with brother, father, father Lewis's silence, right? Because he would say that Merton is, is whispering to me all the time. He's, he's giving me ideas for books and for marketing things and, and he would not be quiet. Right? So, um, but, um, but to me, you know, that person is, is talking because you're not listening to him. Uh, and, and that's what I mean, that, 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 that when we try to split ourselves, that we're trying to put, put things away that, that are still a part of us. And they're only gonna keep coming up if, if we don't deal with that. So it's not going to, it's not going to help me to, to say, I don't, I don't want to be a successful writer or it doesn't matter if I'm not on the New York Times bestseller list when, when that is something I would love to have. So why am I, it's, it's like I'm lying to myself, right? Like trying to be something that we think everybody else wants us to be. Um, I really don't like that phrase, too big for your britches, that, that this constant putting people down. You know, we all want to do well. We all want to, to have our work appreciated. And there's nothing wrong with that. So why allow society to put us in, in boxes? Now, yeah, there, there's, you know, you can't overdo it, right? That, that when ego takes over and, <laughs> and you're doing horrible things, like we just said, too much of a good thing is too bad. But we have to see that some of that desire must come from God. We've been given gifts and God's pleasure is in our fullest expression of those gifts. You know, I'm a big fan of, of the movie Chariots of Fire and, and thinking of the runner, Eric Liddell. And he talks about how, uh, and, and you know, his sister is worried. Oh, this is, this running has taken over your life and it's all about medals and winning. And he's like, no, this is about feeling God's pleasure. When I run, I feel God's pleasure. God made me fast, right? And he gets to use that. And, and yeah, all of this glory comes of it. So is he supposed to deny that and, and not run? <laughs> So that's, that's how I think about that. Um, I, I think about wholeness, right? Merton talked about wholeness a lot in, in unity. And there's a unity that we have with each other, that we are all one. But in order to participate best in that, we need to be whole within ourselves. I love that this is a show where it's okay to sit in silence. Yeah, for our, um, you know, that this podcast is funded through Patreon. And sometimes for our patrons, we'll give them the unedited, you know, recording so they can hear those pauses. Because you're right, it is really an integral part of the conversation. You know, and you just saying this, integral part of the conversation, 
I used to think when, when bad things were happening, um, 10 years ago, I lost one of my sisters 10 years ago. And I remember the, the night before she died, just, you know, being in, in this space of prayer, but feeling this silence, a silence that felt like a void, like, like God wasn't there. And I felt like I couldn't really pray. And I used to think I couldn't pray, that, that when tough things were happening, that I just couldn't pray. That was just the way that it was. And I remember even having a conversation with my rector about this many years ago. And she said to me, well, that's, that's when you have other people pray for you. Now, about four or five years ago, I, um, a friend of mine was in surgery because we were waiting to find out whether or not she had cancer. And I remember standing in the hallway at the hospital, looking out on this courtyard and feeling that same silence. It was like a void. And I remember thinking, okay, here it is again. <laughs> but something, I can't tell you, something came to me and I realized that that's not what it was. And, and he, these are the words, I may have put these in the book also, um, but this is what I, I, that I, I sensed, that we pray all the time, right? We pray all the time. And to me, maybe that's like a flapping of wings, right? This is how we maintain our flight. We are constantly flapping our wings in prayer. But then something told me that in that moment, that's where, what is the word? You're soaring. Right? You are not flapping your wings. This is, this is the part where you just soar and you trust. And, and this is where all of the other work comes into play. And it's not that God isn't there. God is there more than ever before. God doesn't go anywhere. So this is the part where I have to soar. And that's, that's where I came to feel that, that this silence is more of an engagement, right? That, that this is where the prayer is at work. And, and that it's okay. I appreciate that image so much because how beautiful that is to say in that moment when the bird is soaring, they're relying on the air currents to keep them up. Yeah. They're not doing the work. Exactly. And part of flight, birds have to do both. Like you just said, there's times you have to work. There's times you flap your wings and move your body and turn your tail feathers and do everything you need to do. And then there's other times where the bird senses, all right, hold those wings tight to the body, get aerodynamic, point the beak, and the wind's going to do it. And it knows when it's supposed to do it. And the wind is always there. Right? Like, just like, you know, so like, like God, like you said. So it's, that is, a and, and the beautiful image, the poetic words you just gave to me is like, this is time, like, I, I'm going to use it the next time I'm in that space. I could feel me crying thinking about it right now. It's just those spaces where it hurts the most and you can almost hear somebody whispering in your ear and time for you to soar. I mean, that's just beautiful. You know, Cassie and I have talked about this before that um, I've been reading a lot about, don't laugh, I've been reading a lot about the Bee Gees <laughs> and specifically um, Robin Gibb. When, when he was 19, he was in... A, a terrible train accident. It's a historic train accident. It killed like 50 people. And he talks about being in the train and the train spinning over and over. 
And he says, in that moment, I thought about God. And he said, I'm not a church going person, but in that moment, I thought about God. And he's like, and what, what does that tell you? Um, and he said that once it all stopped, once the train finally came to a stop, that he was in this space of, of calm where he was able to get himself out of the car. He helped his girlfriend who was hysterical. He helped her get out of the car, the train. And then they walked along the top of the this, um, train on its side and he started helping getting other people out. And it was it was exactly, I'm thinking about it because it's exactly what you described that that he realized, okay, it's time, right? It's time and he knew he was okay and that he could start doing what needed to be done in this terrible situation. And it, it was exactly like that. It was time for him to soar. I just want to echo your words. Silence. This is where the prayer is at work. Thank you for that. But we have to trust it. And isn't it interesting how we don't trust silence, right? Especially in a room full of people that someone has to, you know, we feel we have to say something, <laughs> right? Interject something. That, that, and even people um, who, who can't be alone, who are afraid of silence, right? What, what is it that they're afraid of? You know, I, I have to remind myself of that sometimes because, um, for example, my editor had to keep reminding me that, that a lot of people don't know Thomas Merton because I, I just talk about him as, oh yeah, everybody knows because he's that much a part of me. I have to remember that sometimes about silence. That I just, just you know, I forget that people don't like silence Right, that because I'm I'm perfectly fine with with sitting in a space and not saying anything. That's that, but that can make somebody else uncomfortable. What is your hope for this book? What What do you hope people gain from it? Or did you just feel like, as you, as you were describing before, of the chariots of fire? Was this just something you had to do, or is it a, a little bit of both? It's a little bit of both. This is me doing what I do. <laughs> you know, at the right. end of the day. But I'm also about, and, and, you know, I used to be a Christian formation teacher at my church, and I consider myself a, a foundational teacher in, in anything, even in talking about writing. I want you to understand just how to get your foot in, how to walk in so that you can do the thing that you need to do. So to me, this book is about helping others find their way in. To, to engaging with, with Merton or with any spiritual writing. Here's, here's how you can work with it and, and have it affect your life. I've also seen many people talk about how, you know, they love Merton quotes, right? Because they see Merton quoted in social media and all sorts of things, but they, they don't know Merton. And if they do pick up something like Conjectures of a Guilty Bystander, they might be totally intimidated by it. And so much of what is written about Merton is kind of academic or theological and, and not necessarily for the lay person. And, and I'm all about the lay person. So, so to me, this is, you know, here's how a lay person can engage with Merton. Is there another monk or mystic or saint who you might be in conversation with now? Anyone else who's following you around? <laughs> You know, this is such an organic process. That's actually something I, I'm concerned about, that, that they will like this book so much that, that people will start asking me to do it for a different person. I'm like, uh, I don't know if I can. But, um, but I have to say that um, even before I knew who he was, Howard Thurman is sort of has, has taken 
root of my in my curiosity. You know, I have um, a book that is basically uh, kind of like a devotional, and it has quotes from all sorts of people. But I found myself, you know, and there are many quotes from him in the book, and I kept, you know, it was one of those things where I keep looking through. And I was like, wow, huh, this is Howard Thurman again, huh? Wonder who this Howard Thurman is, and hmm. and and I didn't know he was black, didn't know anything about him, and and now. Um, I'm, I'm more curious than ever about him. Uh, Barbara Brown Taylor and I did um, a session for the Decatur Book Festival last year where um, we had a, a, an exchange where, you know, I'm coming from the point of um, talking about Thomas Merton and she's talking about Howard Thurman. And, and part of it is, you know, that, that curious thing, like, oh, here's this black woman talking about this white guy. And, and here she is, you know, white woman talking about this black guy. But, but at the same time, we are expressing the oneness that both of these writers uh, felt very strongly about our humanity and about talk, talking about faith. And if anything, this is how it should be, right? <laughs> that, that we can engage across these socially constructed lines, right? And be who, who we really are and to talk about God. We often ask our, our conversation partners, if they have a, a silence hero, and I know we've been talking about Thomas Merton and maybe Thomas Merton is your silence hero, but I'm kind of curious, is there other people? I mean, you've mentioned Howard Thurman. Is there somebody in your personal life, a family friend or you know, anybody, a, a literary character? I mean, somebody that kind of captures for you that palpable silence that you described to Cassidy at the beginning that kind of embodies that for you. I mean, it, it might be Merton, but maybe not. There's a friend uh, who... Um... And I'm, I'm not going to say his name because I'm going to say something that, that I don't know if it's if if it would be embarrassing or not. But um, one of the things I noticed about him, he's he's a prayerful person himself. But um, one of the things I noticed about him, like I've seen this both in conversation with him, but also in seeing him in conversation with others, that if he's asked something, he won't say no, but he won't say yes either. He will be silent. And I've noticed those silences. I'm like, okay. I've noticed, and I'm recognizing. I I know when to hear them. He he's someone who says way more with his silence. And and sometimes I'm I I like watching him in conversation because I'm looking at the other person. I'm like, do you even realize that he just said essentially said no to you, and you didn't even hear it. And <laughs> you're still trying. You're going on. They may even be assuming that he's that he's going to do what they're asking him to do. But it's like. No, he said no to you. <laughs> that his silence, it's powerful. It is so powerful. <laughs> I'm impressed by it, you know, and, and he wields it so well. And he's he's not like a huge presence, like like will knock you over, but what but I can see that he's a powerful person, right? And I think that has a lot to do with his silence and and his, he's a writer. His words are powerful in, in that same way. But, um, but yeah, he's, he's the one. <laughs> it's fascinating. Mm. I love that. And I love that you named someone that you didn't name, that you, your silence hero is someone that will remain unnamed. I think that's also really honorable and beautiful. So we love poetry on this podcast and we love hearing our guests read things. I wonder if you might have a poem or even an excerpt from your book that you might be willing to share with us. I'm thinking about Rumi, right? Because Rumi wrote a lot about silence. 
this silence, this moment, every moment, if it's genuinely inside you, brings what you need. There's nothing to believe. Only when I stopped believing in myself did I come into this beauty. Sit quietly and listen for a voice that will say, be more silent, die and be quiet. Quietness is the surest sign that you've died. Your old life was a frantic running from silence. Move outside the tangle of fear thinking. Live in silence. Beautiful. Thank you so much. Reminds me of Merton's poem on silence. You know, when he asks the question, whose silence are you? <laughs> I had a question. I was wondering, have you guys, uh, do you guys ever talk about the screw tape letters? Not we on here. Yet. No, we haven't yet. No. I've read them, of course. Because um, I was, I was wondering if that was going to come up in our conversation. Because you know, in in that in that conversation of of how to how to you know distract man, they talk about you make enough noise so that they can't hear the voice of God. Yeah, that's right. That the, the distraction is don't let them get silent. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. That's huge. Yeah, I mean, and that makes total sense that Lewis would write that because, I mean, he's clearly digging off the the desert fathers and mothers, the masters of the desert, that like in the silence is where you can hear God speak and our our racing thoughts and our noise and everything stop us from hearing God trying to communicate. And I think, and this is another reason why it's important to talk about silence, because I think we all want to hear God but we think it's supposed to sound a certain way. And, and has anyone ever asked you, it's like, well, what is it like? Do you actually hear a voice? Right? People think that you're, that you're hearing voices. And so I think it's important to talk about it so people understand that, that you will hear it and, and you will hear it in a way that only you can hear it. Right? It may not be like a voice. Um, have you guys seen Harriet, the, the movie about Harriet Tubman? Mm -hmm. Yeah. But the way they constructed this, I mean, Harriet Tubman had a, a severe brain injury and every so often would be prone to blackouts. Now, the way they wrote about it in the, in the movie, it's not just a blackout. She's having premonition. She's actually communicating with God when she has these moments. And, and it usually she comes out of it knowing that she has to do something. And um, there's a wonderful moment where she has come back to Philadelphia. She had gone back to try to rescue um, the man she'd been married to, only to find out he'd been married to somebody else. And so she's sitting there, you know, despondent, and a friend who is who is bathing her and taking care of her says, um, what is what is a man to a woman who hears the voice of God? Right? I love that part. And then she asks her, what is it? What does it sound like? Right? Because you could tell she has that fascination too, that hunger. Right. So it's, it's, I, I love, I love thinking about that. If there's a love there that to hear God is to, to have a chance of knowing and understanding the love that God has for us. And I think we hunger for that, but we, we don't know, or maybe even fear of what that sounds like. Maybe that's why we fear silence. Maybe because we think we will hear God and we won't be able to take it. 
we may not want to hear what God has to say to us. Exactly, yeah. Can't do it, won't, or won't do the thing that God may want us to do, or calling us to do. But like you said, uh, you can't live that split life, you know? You can't run away from Thomas Merton. No. <laughs> and for you, that's, that, that has a double-edged meaning. <laughs> yes. But fortunately for him, you know, I'm I'm used to to dealing with um, with guys who can be annoying. <laughs> I don't know how to have a love for them. I I I, I have um I have a thing for guys who are who are brash and um and kind of um I don't know kind of arrogant, right? I'm fascinated by them, and and, and in certain ways, I I want to cheer them on. Like like I'm a big fan of the Tour de France, right? I'm and, and I love the sprinters. And for years, Mark Cavendish was my favorite sprinter. And I am part of the reason I love him is because he was so, he is so brash and sure of himself. And you have to be that way if you're fighting in that peloton to get to the front of the pack. So, so I understand a lot of what, you know, Merton going, what he had to go through. Like it was probably not easy for him to be as famous as he was, as young as he was. And to figure out where it all fit in with his his vocation as a monk and what God's plan was for him. Right? Yeah, the constitutions of the Trappist order, and I don't know if this was true in Merton's lifetime, but it's true today, describes their life as ordinary, obscure, and laborious. <laughs> and so I would imagine Merton would have had a similar kind of understanding of the culture. So in many ways, it it really struck at the whole heart of what he had signed up for. Yeah. So it was a profound kind of existential dilemma. And I love so much how you spoke to kind of the authenticity. So yeah, you know, that authentic desire you, you create in order to connect with people. Yeah. And, then, and then to live in this culture that says we're all about withdrawing. That, that had to have been just a profound tension that he probably never fully resolved. Yeah, and he was ready to give it up. But then to have his abbot say, no, we want you to write, keep writing. Well, thank you so much for the time today because this is just, I don't know, between the images and, and your language, uh, you know, you, you taught us so much today. I'll be uh, using soaring forever. It was a pleasure. And thank you for your book. It will do great work for many people. That is, that is my hope. That is exactly my hope. Thank you. It's been a delight speaking with you, Sophronia. Thank you for being here with us today. You're welcome, Carl. Yes, thank you so much for your wisdom and insights. And and we will be thinking about you and your next book and curious about who shows up. <laughs> but may you always show up in the work too, because that is that is the real gift that you're giving us. So thank you for that. We are Encountering Silence. I'm Cassidy Hall. To learn more about me, please visit CassidyHall.com. I'm Kevin Johnson. To find out more about my work, visit my website, KevinMichaelJohnson.com. I'm Carl McCollman. My website is CarlMcCollman.com. Please visit the podcast website, 
at EncounteringSilence.com. There, you can learn more about each of our episodes and find links to purchase books and other resources we discuss on the podcast. By making a purchase through our website, the podcast receives a small affiliate commission from Amazon.com. Also, to learn more about how you can be a part of our circle of supporters, visit Patreon.com slash Encountering Silence. This way you can share in our efforts to bring meaningful conversations about silence to our all-too-noisy world.